Hi, Christian. No. <laughs> we do not start the show that way. There's a way that you can guarantee that I will never again start the show that way. I am going to exercise that privilege this time, I think. I, I edit the shows. Oh, yeah. nice. And he doesn't like the fact that I, in, list, in reaction to some listener feedback, asking that we please find some way to verbally denote that we are beginning the show, since we don't have intro music. Right. Um, do you want me to sing? I would or love for you to sing. Do, do you like sing? Muppet News. I like that. That, that works. That works. <laughs> yeah. right. um, Not going to do it. Well, so I say, hi, Christian, and he doesn't like that. So no, I don't it mind it. Every I, time. I don't mind it. I just, you know, I don't want a catchphrase at the beginning all the time. It's not a catchphrase. It's a normal greeting for English speakers. But it's a little weird because you're already here. Hi, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we should, uh, feedback. We have some feedback before we start the show. And we're not even going to say who the guest is. It's right. a mystery that they can it is solve total- by looking at the right. title on the thing they just yeah. downloaded. But It's an auditory mystery. Yeah. Feedback? Should we do that? Sure. Do you have uh, Do you have any feedback, Joe? I did receive an email. Is that the one you'd like me to talk about? Yeah. Do you want to talk about it? I feel like you should talk about it because it concerns you. Well, so uh, a, a loyal listener uh, sent me a very friendly email to offer some consolation and to help me feel better about the fact that, uh, much to my annoyance, <laughs> Christian routinely calls me Adam Smith as a nickname. Um, for reasons passing understanding, I don't understand why he does it, but he that's, does it often. That's most of the things I do, though. And and I usually register some displeasure. At do you know when I'm riding with my family in the car, I'll occasionally just call like a crow for no reason? <laughs> yeah, it makes they, it doesn't make any sense. I have no trouble believing that. Okay. Uh, and so this person wrote to say, you know, Adam Smith did a lot of great things. Was an incredibly important thinker for his time. In many ways, quite progressive and forward thinking, and uh, and that's all true. Yeah, uh, and so thank you for the consolation to that uh, great listener, and uh, yeah, I still don't any want anyone calling me Adam Smith. Thank you. He wrote beautifully about empathy. Do you know this, Adam Smith? Is this in his Adam theory of moral sentiments and not Smith. in the wealth of nations? Uh, whenever, yes, not the wealth of nations, but whenever I get on one of my empathy kicks, uh, someone will send me. You know, it turns out that one of the great uh, theorists of empathy was Adam Smith. So. I would take that to the bank. And the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, David Hume, uh, I think more so than Adam Smith, but um, in any event, uh, you know, contributed greatly to the development of, you know, Anglo-American history and culture, and that's all great. And I am not Adam Smith and do not want to be referred to as Adam Smith. So in the context of the show, occasionally (laughs) Joe will make a point which seems to involve basic market, yeah. Right. And given how often markets come up. It's and, quite a little verbal tick you've developed. And I, <laughs> I don't call you Adam Smith. But of course, now it's a thing. And so I do it just because it's a thing. Just for the... Right. And I know. It's just a goofy thing. Call me Keynes. This is the part that uh, the listeners skip. Call me Krugman. Um, <laughs> if you want to call me someone a whole lot smarter than me who writes about economics... Let me... Should I say what, what else uh, listener Spencer said? In yes, because that's all I remember. Okay. I was so he touched also, by his consolation. Talk, talking about the last show with Brigham Daniels. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great yeah. show. Great show. This is about climate change. It's really good. Yeah, Brigham's great. Uh, Also, great show. The length seemed to have been shortened by Christian's rapid speech, though also lengthened by the longevity of his speech. (laughs) 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 But I enjoyed the passion of the entirety of the analysis, especially on the psychological rejection of climate change by uh, conservatives or by climate deniers. Mm. So, you know, I think you got to take the good with bad. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I just say what I think. 
Absolutely. What else can you do? And you say it quickly. And longly. I, and longly. Longly and, and lengthily. And yeah. both, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that's, that's the feedback. Oh, there's one other thing I wanted to do. Uh, <laughs> this is the longly part. <laughs> no, I wanted to acknowledge. Last week, I mentioned that... Uh, that a listener had mentioned us as one of the five must-listen-to-law podcasts or something like that uh, nice. and had tweeted about it. Uh, and I, and I, didn't, I didn't have the stuff in front of me to say who it was. So I just want to give a shout-out to, I think it's Derek, is it Mueller or Muller? I have no idea. You'll have to tell us how to pronounce his name. I feel terrible about that. It's professor but, uh, of Pepperdine, right? Yeah, Professor of Pepperdine. And uh, so thanks for that. I thought that was fantastic. Where can someone write to us if they have feedback for us that they would like to share? Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Are there any like dots or no, hyphens or? There's no funny business. Just there's no funny business. Podcast at gmail. We don't mess around. Just, Excellent. Yeah. If they write to Adam Smith, will it somehow get to you? I I I don't know. Although interestingly, I I have been called out of my body by people doing Adam Smith seances. Mm-hmm. I actually get yanked into that okay, so uh, space. So happen. that's a little disturbing. Okay. Should we? Thank God, England is hours ahead of us. <laughs> I think it. I think it may be time. It may be time to introduce our guest. It may be. Joe? Yes. Who's our guest today? I- I'm so blinded by the light. I don't know that I can actually <laughs> speak her name. <laughs> Dahlia Lithwick. Whoa. Welcome. Hi. Live. Welcome. Live in, in, Live head- in the studio. Yeah, in the studio headquarters. We're so lucky. Yeah, we are. We I'm are. lucky. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, one of the things I was going to do today, um, and, and I'm, I'm missing a prop. For this, but I but we can. I promise that I will do it uh, right after the show. I'm going to sign up live for Slate Plus. Oh my I god! I've not signed up yet. I'm already a Slate Plus member, oh, so yeah. you know, I didn't want to do it before the show because, of course, you. we don't offer our guests any kind of emoluments or no. inducements. This no. is just a you know. So I didn't want that to be a thing. But you write for Slate, I do. among other things. I do. Uh, and 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 Slate Plus is is the latest Slate kick, or or the or, I mean, maybe that makes it sound too. Uh, uh, trivial, but it's, no, no, it's a, a major initiative, right? Yeah, yeah. it's mm-hmm. our way to, to to be a little less reliant on advertising, which mm-hmm. is fraught with difficulty, and a little more reliant on our loyal readers. And yeah. it's a big thing, so I really appreciate it. And your picture's all over that thing. Is it? That's <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it I'm not about, a member. <laughs> exclusive, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, exclusive I'm access to, okay. to, yes. uh, to Slate, your favorite Slate contributors, I think. I feel like it's a real bargain, because, um, and I did it you know, in that first week they were promoting it, because I listened to a number of the podcasts and so i like getting the version of the podcast that doesn't have the commercials in it and that's one of the benefits is that they send you a little url that's just for you and you put that in your podcast Mm -hmm. app or what have you and um and you get those commercial free versions of the plus there's a little you know they'll have a little extra segment at the end where there's content for the podcast that they simply don't include in the general podcast and so i like that I think it's fun. I'm getting more of my great Culture Gap Fest episode or whatever, and so that's terrific. Well, I'll be joining you shortly. Thank cool. you both. And I yeah. and I did a, a special feature that Joe will know about that was what it's like to cover oral argument, which I thought people just knew that I did for Slate Plus, and mm. people actually didn't know much of the what it's like to cover the it. information that I like that they line us up according to here's what rank I gather. in the world. No, so here's what I've gathered. <laughs> From what I'm able to tell, and I yeah, I tweeted the other day that that for for an outside observer who's interested in what the Supreme Court does, if you want to follow along live, it's kind of like you're in like the like Mission Control Center and Sputnik's about to fly overhead, and you just get these beep 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 beep. Because uh, so what happens is on Scotus Blog, you know they have a lot. That's the closest you can get to a live mm-hmm. thing. Very uh, much. They start a live blog. 
they talk about when they expect things and authors of various opinions and maybe what's possible and what's not possible. But people are kind of guessing. And then eventually Lyle Denniston will report back on how many boxes. Right. right. <laughs> are Two boxes there. today. And then, right, exactly. And that lets us know how many opinions. Yeah, but if they're very long, maybe there will be. Uh, fewer, and if they're short, there, there could be more. And so, I guess today there was what one, only two. two. There were two boxes and, and two opinions. Yeah, yeah. So that's weird. Everything about everything, everything, everything about Why we can you- we can get me complaining about decision days, but I think it's early in the podcast for cranky. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get crankier as we go yeah, along. Let's work our way up to cranky. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we we can do that, but okay. yeah. Why why is you think? I mean, hmm. and we're there. Yeah. <laughs> well, but that didn't take long. Well, we're, maybe eventually we can get to uh, specific things that annoy you. Maybe like a stand up gig. You know, you, you ever notice how that kind of yeah. thing? No, but uh, what's just, up with that? <laughs> but we can start just by why why is the why is this so weird? Why is the process? Is it is there a long history of practice? Is it the the age of the justices in terms of embracing new technologies is it uh, uh, is it just you know that they've been doing things a certain way it's a very complicated process and usually don't change things that are kind of working um, I mean but paradoxically it's not working so yeah. right like if you look at Bush v Gore or if you look at the ACA cases see you started with, you started with Bush v Gore the first case name you mentioned is Bush v Gore and that is the, I think if we start talking about it, we mentioned this last the same case came up last time last episode. And we said that's going to end the entire podcast if we start. Well, only in so far as the hand down doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to talk about the merits. Okay, go ahead. Let's leave the merits. Let's say it was the best reason decision ever made, but oh. like the hand down doesn't yeah. work. And when you have people standing in front of the court and they're flipping through an opinion, right. trying to Reading read the holding right. and getting it wrong, yeah, uh, that's a big problem. And there are fixes for these problems. And when you say the hand down, you mean actually handing pieces of paper yeah. to individual journalists, right. right? So, so you know, the story I tell that for me crystallizes the problem, and you know, I first world problems, right? Nobody starves at the end of this. But like when the ACA cases were handed down and we knew that was going to be that day, you could choose one of three ways to receive your information. You could be in the the ceremonial courtroom, in which case you are locked in and you have to listen to all of the opinions and the dissents that are being read from the bench. So by the time you leave, you've certainly seen Justice Mm -hmm. Roberts grouchily reading his majority and Kagan and, you know, you see it. But it's like seven hours later and you don't have your, you know, tweeter machine with you. So by the time you leave the room, it's over. Because it, it, it is an electronic quarantine. They don't yes. let you take right. in any. Right. And, That's uh, an important point. Nothing. You say you're there, but your, your, your devices are not there. Your devices so, are not so there. You are there. So you are there, but you there. can't communicate with the outside world. Right. So that's choice one. To be yeah. in the room, to actually watch history being made. But by the time you write it, you're writing history. Or you can be uh, in the the press room where uh, you can read the decision, but as soon as you get up and leave to write it, you're out. Right. So you can sort of be there, get it, and then flip through it and tweet. So you're the first guy to tweet, but you don't you don't get to hear what's going right. on. So you really have this like you can choose to hear, you can choose to see, or you can choose to speak. It's like the monkeys. You know, hear no evil. You have no scenario in which you can either, you know, sort of simultaneously say what's going on and watch what's going on and know what's going on and hear what's going on. So you have to pick. No multi monkey. No, you're well, the monkey the best- who reads fast and tweets wrong, as happened. is exactly that happened what to happened to CNN. Right? With CNN the and Fox people. reported yeah. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or you're the monkey who, you know, can sit there and listen to it being piped in. 
but you mm-hmm. can't write. Or you can right. be the monkey who's typed, stuck in the courtroom, and it's happening, and you're seeing it. And by the time you write your piece, it's now, over. For and an outsider, crazy, right? it is. For an As outsider looking in, it seems to me by far the best way, given the current lineup, just based on what I can tell from what Scotus Blog does and what I'm able to get on my own phone. When, uh, the as soon as the opinions are, I guess, being discussed in the courtroom, mm-hmm. somehow the clerk or the webmaster, whoever it is, makes them available on the court site. Right. So I can download the opinions as they're being announced. Right. Uh, maybe I would get them faster if I were there at the court and were getting papers from these boxes, but it seems to me much better to have the electronic copy. So is there any advantage to being at the court if your goal is to report quickly on what the Supreme Court's done? Uh, on any day that I have to do radio at 10 of 7, yeah. it makes more sense to be at my house in my pajamas on SCOTUS blog. Um, and that's, it seems to me a, a strange paradox. Yeah. And, you know, all of this is compounded by the fact that if you have to be on TV or on the radio at 10.07, you're going to get it wrong. And so one interesting thing is that um, over the years, many, many Supreme Court reporters have gone to the courts and said, is there anything we can do to make us not get things wrong? And the court's posture has been, I mean, there's a sort of famous story about Linda Greenhouse uh, going to then Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist and saying, when you hand down seven decisions on a Monday and we have to read and write about all seven of them and each of them is 50-some pages, that was in the days when they were 50-some pages was long, uh, we're going to get a bunch of them wrong. Is there any way to sort of spread that over three days? And Rehnquist's answer was, why don't you just write about two of them? And then tomorrow (laughs) you could write about another two. As though, you know, we're, we're in, in the twos, <laughs> you know, and we could just pick what the news is. Right. And, right. and so... And, and even uh, Chief what Justice- else do you see there in your colon, Bill? Because your head is obviously <laughs> oh. located there. I mean, honestly, no, that was the answer. write about two. Right, pick two, get them right, and don't feel the pressure to write about four. You can write about the other tomorrow. It's your problem. And and Chief Justice Roberts, when the press has come to him in in, in a sort of similar posture and said, if you just could give us a heads up, which cases are coming down, which days, and we could you know write our leads and figure out. Mm-hmm. And he just really, I think, has taken the position. This is our problem. And doesn't redound to the courts, you know, to any negative effect at the court when we make mistakes. Do you have any idea what the reason is for not giving the names of the decisions in advance? Is it that are there times when they have prepared a decision to be handed down and at the last minute it's been pulled back? Or even if that happened and they pulled it back, what would be the yeah, damage well, my, to the my court? Friend, my friend Adam Smith would tell you it's the market, <laughs> that it really is the market. Ah! <laughs> the crow noise. No, it's, <laughs> it's, the, it's the that there had been this feeling like if we in an, announce in advance what's going to happen, it would have this some kind of deep, deep effect on, on the market. So we, we like do jack-in-the-box style where at 10 o'clock – uh, you find out what's coming down. That's been the the argument that it really did uh, affect the markets to let you know in advance. I will say one other thing. So strange. It's so strange. Um, but I will say one other thing about this that I think is interesting, which is um, the Canadian Supreme Court has this system uh, called a lockdown, and they uh, hand the reporters the civil Canadian oh. reporters. They take away their blackberries and their phones. Yeah. And two hours before the announcement of the decision, they actually hand the paper copy to the journalists and say, why don't you read it so you know right. what it's going to say. And there's a, a press officer there who will answer your questions in case it's not clear so that when the decision is handed down, the reporters actually know what it says. It seems to me that's a 
infinitely sane way of sort of mediating the problems of getting it wrong, but also not having anybody leave. It is a solution that puts a lot of pressure on the definition of the press. Yes. It's too bad that Sonia West just left. Yes. She was over here for a second. Right. Could could have added something to this. But, um, yeah, it does put a lot of pressure on that. Uh, You know, that's true, because anything that enhances access uh, for some subgroup of people who are identified as, quote, the press, as you say... really puts a premium on defining who is a member of that group. Well, the, well, the whole, and they yeah. know they'll get pulled in inevitably into the line drawing, I would think. They might fear that they would get pulled into the line drawing about who is and isn't a member of the press. Because mm-hmm. if, if it's press members who get it two hours earlier, right, well then, am I a member of the press given that I and put, give your little hypo like, it's true, I spend 99.9% of my time working for Goldman Sachs, you know, trading on private accounts. However, every once in a while, I write this thing that goes out to the general public, so I'm a member of the press. Not really. Yeah, so I don't the- want to give you the credentials so that you can get it two hours earlier and it blah, blah, blah. The whole problem, though, that you've identified, Dahlia, is that um, the, the getting it wrong problem essentially cries out for... Um, giving a certain group of people a secret and guaranteeing that that secret be kept for a period, right? Because if it's out to the public, then it's all bets are off. It's a race at that point. And you want to solve the race by picking out a privileged class, which has access to a secret before the rest of the public does. And even if it's a two hour, even if it's a period of two hours, you're not talking about having a secret for a week. Right. Or of indefinite or of, you know, indefinite duration. You're talking about a definite, you know, two-hour period. Right. And, and if you think about this through the prism of, you know, the Lyle Denniston credentialing meltdown that's yeah. happening at the court right now. Right, I mean, with SCOTUS I think Bar. if the court can't even figure out whether Lyle Denniston is a reporter right. for their purposes, then really it amplifies, the, the you mm-hmm. know, the problem you're talking about. Yeah, it which doesn't is bode well. For- who is doing the credentialing and in, whose interest is it to? But I mean, I think for me, the, the, the nut of the problem is as long as the court thinks it is exclusively a press problem and a press responsibility to get it right, then the court will do nothing to make this easier. And... In my view, I remember Tom Goldstein wrote a piece from from SCOTUS blog, wrote a piece after the uh, ACA decisions came down wrong, saying, you know, it does affect the court. It does affect the the court that there's, you know, video footage of of Republican congresswomen dancing in joy that Obamacare had been struck down and then it wasn't. That there are implications for the court and the integrity of the court. But I don't think anyone believes it, and least of Mm. all the court. The court really does think that when the reporters stand on the front steps and get it wrong, that's on us. Yeah, it's, the harms are kind of hard to figure out here, aren't they? Is that you, Joe? Yeah, sorry about that. That's all right. I'm going to leave that in. No, cool. Um, it's Lyle Denniston calling. It <laughs> is. Got credentials. Stop talking about me. <laughs> it's, it's the first of many complaints you're going to have about your off-color comment about Bill Rehnquist. <laughs> Whatever. Joe takes a swipe at a different Supreme Court justice, I think, in every episode. <laughs> not really. No, not really. No, maybe that's the second one. And, you know, but yeah, figuring out the harms here though is really hard, right? So what what is um, uh, what is the harm of of CNN? You know, so of CNN getting the wrong headline uh, is, is that a harm, or is it that because of the race, there's never the good reporting that occurs, right? So it, it, to, in my mind, if there is nonsense in the first five ten minutes after release, but kind of the medium term draft you know later that day is a really good quality piece of reporting that makes the legal issue which is important to the public understandable to the public 
then, you know, not such a big deal. Um, but if the race leads to trying to get up that first draft as quickly as possible, and that first draft never really gets turned into something really good, that is a problem if it's just pure race. And I don't know, I mean, maybe you, you would know certainly a lot better than I would um, how this reporting actually occurs. I, I mean, look, you know, I, I'm in a strange position in this conversation because when I started covering the court, you know, 15 years ago, I was the first or second person up. Yeah. Right. With, 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 you know, I'd have my piece up at three and four right. and everybody else would get their piece up, you know, at seven at the earliest, but usually the next morning. And I was, you know, the, 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 the sort of sprinter. Right. And now I'm, I'm late and slow compared to, you know, even the, even the Adam Liptax and, you know, the, the, the David Savages at the LA Times are expected to have something up online by noon, you know, mm, by yeah. one. Wow. Right. And yeah. so, you know, my complaint about this is that if that's your only piece, that's a problem. You know, either on an argument or a decision. And that I think what's happened is there's a lot of incentive to have that be your only piece. Mm -hmm. That the long, careful, thoughtful, you know, piece that you would have submitted to your editor at seven that night that would have gone in the next morning's paper is kind of gone. Just never gets written. It's too late. Yeah. And the really deep Linda Greenhouse, Tony Lewis piece that would have happened on Sunday is way too late. And so I think the sort of compressed news cycle has compressed interest. Mm-hmm. And that's, so I, that's just my sense of it. That So the thing know, that's in the paper the next morning is the thing that happened at eight last night, yeah. not the thing that happened at 10 yesterday morning. Right, right. Because everything is getting bounced. Right. Because if you're not racing about that story, you're racing about that other story. Right. And there's no paper anymore. It's right. just... Nobody reads it in the paper. Yeah. But yeah. I, I just think that that, what I like is that sort of slight long view. Wait a minute. This happened... I got to think about this. And I really see it just in the press corps. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the press corps coming out of oral argument and having lunch together in the cafeteria mm-hmm. and talking through what had happened after mm. argument. That was magic for me. You know, we worked together. We mm-hmm. really did. And people understood things. Now everybody's on their phone. Everybody's typing. You know, it's that era is over. And I just think... Um, you know, and, and these are the best reporters you're ever going to find. I mean, this press corps is spectacular. So I think yeah. most of them can continue to produce head and shoulders over what other people can produce in a half-hour deadline. But what I worry is what's what's lost at the other end, and I think a little bit what what's lost on the other end is that, huh, I had four hours to think this through. And I, I, I don't know that that happens anymore. So yeah. what are you doing to prep before... Like, so there are big decisions coming as the term progresses and things get ticked off. Well, that's been decided. That's been decided. So, you know, and of course, it, it seems to happen this way every year that in June, second half of June, the big, highly divided vote cases tend to come down. So what do you, are there things you can do in advance of decision day? It's been argued. It's going to be decided. What are you doing to get yourself in a situation where you can respond more quickly? Do people do stuff that... I think to we try do. to cope with this, or I, what? I come to Athens and podcast. I find that, really <laughs> that well, that's relaxing. obviously the right thing to do. Um, yeah. I, you know, I go back read my argument. We're a sanctuary pieces. here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the dogs. Uh, <laughs> but so I read my argument pieces. Um, a lot of us now write our first paragraph or two well in advance because we know Hobby Lobby's coming and we're going to have to write fast. Uh, so I think there's there's a lot of you know, how much of this can I get down on a piece of paper, pretty much telegraphing based on what happened in an argument, what I think is going to happen. So I think there's a little bit of that. Um, and I also think, you know, at some point you really get good at reading those opinions very, very quickly. Mm. And I think, you know, the other thing that I would say I, I lament about a little bit 
is that in the era of having to do three radio interviews and a podcast and, you know, also tweet, you're expected to tweet everything and expected to do, you know, much more. I mean, I think most of the reporters, again, the Supreme Court reporters are expected to talk on five or six platforms in those two, three hours after a decision comes down. And so, you know, I really noticed this. On decision days, I notice it that people are again. It's that: Do you want to be the monkey with the ears or the monkey with the mouth? You've got to make a decision. Or if you say to CNN, "I'll sit in the chair," you're making a decision to do one thing. If you say to uh, one of the NPR shows, "I'm going to do a 20 minute," you know, so you're constantly making a decision about which value you put, and all that might be at the expense of writing. Right? It's certainly at the expense of writing a deep, yeah. thoughtful piece. Sure. And so I, I really realized this. I tweeted most of the Kagan uh, confirmation hearing. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is interesting. This is a new platform. And afterwards, I realized, A, I didn't know what had happened. <laughs> B, there are really wonky incentives for tweeting, right? So everybody got to tweet the Chinese food kosher, Chinese yeah. food Christmas night. But like, there's incentives to tweet that stuff, not the deep stuff. And then when I would go back to reconstruct a piece at the end of the day based on my tweets, I had nothing there. Mm. So I think that, you know, we're all playing with you know, which fora makes sense to do this. And the incentives are to tweet, right? right. Slate would love it if I, you know, did a lot more tweeting, a lot more podcasting. Yeah. But there's costs. And right. especially if you kind of know that at 5 p.m., bing, you know, the toaster goes off and no one's interested. Yeah. Uh, then I feel like you're doing a lot of kind of jockeying to figure out how I add value right. and which platform I do it on. And that's complicated. That's new. Yeah. And then value is such a weird term too, right? Because I mean, the competition these days, I mean, maybe it always has been, but, but now it's multimedia. Like the competition is for attention. It's for people's time, right? To invest. And, and then hopefully you've got a business model that can monetize that attention or, or like us, we have jobs that allow us to, you know, do things like this. But, um, but now you have to decide where you're going to go after that attention. Are people going to download and listen to a podcast? Are they going to, you know, maybe they go on Twitter because they're, you know, you can do read 140 character tweets, you know, when you're in line or uh, when you're walking the dog or, you know, whatever else. Uh, um, but it's not the kind of, you know, or, or do you want to write the big piece that people read on a Sunday morning or something like that and really feel enriched by it? I don't know. All these things are... I don't know how you would prioritize those things. I don't know either. I mean, I feel like I feel like I've had a lot of conversations with folks in the press corps about what is value, how do I add value, given what Eugene Volokh is doing, you know, given what Rick Hassan are doing. I mean, that mm-hmm. didn't exist when we started. Right. You know? Doug Berman can have a post up faster than I can. He gets it better. He wrote the treatise. Right. So what am I do? What, what you know? And I, there's this sense that the space has both been thrown wide open, but also contracted at the same time. Right. And you try to locate yourself in one of those places. And what I find is uh, there's an awful lot of okay. I'm going to tweet something. I'm going to do this quick radio hit. I'm going to you know try to write two paragraphs and then query what's lost right. in that. And and so I think. It's just part of the, the huge change that's happened in the media. And I think that, I guess I would just end that thought by saying whether a 125-page opinion in Hobby Lobby or the ACA cases is the best place to experiment with this, right? In other words, the law hasn't changed. The yeah. opinions are longer and harder. Uh, and so we're doing all this, you know, shucking and jiving at exactly the moment when the law is exactly as it was, if yeah. not more complicated. And in pursuit of other people's attention, you're distracting yourself, mm-hmm. right? It's like you're, and and you need to focus in order to produce what you think is your best work. And it's incompatible with 
going after people's attention in all of these different formats. But when and it's, and it's know, odd to think that the court is unconcerned with... So, for example, it, presumably, if there were a problem at the print shop and there were not much ink on the page or much toner on the page and someone went up to the clerk and said, you know, there's a lot of these words in this opinion that we can't actually read. They would consider that their problem. Because accuracy is sort of like, well, gosh, you're right. You can't read that. Well, then why don't you want to participate in promoting accuracy when it isn't the toner cartridge, but when it's people have enough time to sort of read and comprehend it as a sentence that they're going to be reporting on an hour from now? So, it is so, an odd disconnect. So you're so you're leading me right to my cranky place. Can we get oh, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because up till now it hasn't <laughs> been cranky. No, it's this been is really... yeah. I was just thinking we haven't been at the cranky <laughs> place. <laughs> but I feel like what you're saying really hits one really important nail on the head, which is the court persistently. I mean, on one issue, the nine justices are absolutely in lockstep, and that is the reporting about the court is crap. You know, they love. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it transcends ideology. You know, Ginsburg is as, as apt to trash the press. Uh, as, no one as likes to be translated, Scalia. though, right? Well, so that's it, right? They feel like what we do is mangle what they're doing. To which my response is, and it's sort of like, what if there were blobs on the page, right? That's their, their problem. My response is, you know how you fix that? Roll in a camera or have right. audio, right? If you... Cut out the the bungling middleman with the fedora and the typewriter. <laughs> there is a way to not be mediated and translated by the press. So I really feel like what makes me crazy is if they don't want to be seen as as having gotten it wrong, let people see them. But they but they're in this totally reliant position where they yeah. we're the way to get the message out. But they hate how they we do it. They think they're more open than any other branch of government, though, right? Because they. You know, everybody gets the opinions at the same time. And in those opinions, they not only do their jobs, you know, to decide these cases, but they explain their reasons and they explain the reasons why those of them who disagree, disagree. Um, And I think, uh, you know, I I don't know, I've, I've heard from a few of them, not all of them, but at least some of them, I think, feel like they're writing directly to the American people, people of... Um, you know, good intelligence who can follow an opinion and, and, you know, they're written at different levels and, and some of them try harder than others to remove uh, terms of art. And Justice Kagan really see in a way that the others, she really seems to be almost in a class by herself as one of the contemporary justices who does yeah. that. Yeah. In, yeah. In, as well as with some wit and some charm and, and, but, but writing in a very direct uh, way to speak to people where they, you know, where they are. But there's still a market for news. This is this is my Adam Smith point. This Are you ready what? for this? Is my dun, Adam dun, Smith dun. point? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, oh, but yeah. You obviously, there, there's still a market for translation of their opinions. Otherwise, you know, people like Dahlia wouldn't have a job, right? Um, or you'd be writing more stuff about other things rather mm-hmm. than the court. Uh, so there still is a market for translations of of what of what they're doing. Um, would there be less of a market for that if oral argument were streamed? Uh, if decision days were streamed, so when they, I, I, I kind of doubt it. I mean, I think that would give us better access. I, it's kind of now I'm kind of torn because I, um, you know, my inclination is that they should at least stream audio of everything, right? Um, and I just, I, I really know, do think that. But but that would exacerbate the kind of problem that you're talking because once that information is out there, the the reporters who want to, you know, 
you know, capitalize on their ability to translate what these people are saying into something they think that their audience understands, you have to do it quickly because all the information is out there, right? Isn't there some advantage to the fact that the transcripts don't come down right away? Uh, that the um, but they do they come down later that day they don't they come down pretty soon yeah but it's not it's not within minutes though no no no, no I mean it it's is the, it's but, the but, several but, hours but, that you're talking but about but ask right? yourself this question until very recently the transcripts just said the court right it didn't even say the name of the oh, justice right, just yeah. asking the question yeah so you know, what is what is enshrined in that idea the idea is you know that the court is like nine brains in a vat and that you know a lot of what. <laughs> The, the, not in nine vats, in one vat. <laughs> one vat, one vat. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that that's really the sensibility that still carries on. I think so much of this isn't about, you know, we, we are immediately accessible and we want people to see our work product. It's all there in the four corners of opinion. If it was all there, you wouldn't have a, right. a transcript that obscures identity. Right. So it seems to me that this is a court purporting to be oracular, right? This is the Oracle at Delphi. And they have done a lot of things, constructed a lot of systems to create that. And then I think you have this simultaneous complaint that makes no sense, which is we don't like being translated because we're perfectly clear on our face, but we're completely incomprehensible (laughs) on our face if someone has to translate us. And I just think... Pick a side, you know, pick right. a side. And if you believe that, you know, the best possible thing is Adam Liptak getting it right the first time, help him get it right. But it just seems that, that you can't both accept responsibility and deny responsibility it, under the guise of we're better than that. Is the syllabus meant to be a kind of translation? Because I mean, one of the arguments is no matter how clear you are, if your opinion is 100 pages or if all the opinions are 100 pages long, the, you know, the person who has another job is not going to be able to... Uh, read through that on a regular basis but the syllabi are 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 pretty short but the syllabi are uh, you know they very careful say not the opinion of the court and all that but i don't know if they're easier to understand i think they're just shorter right maybe even harder to understand yeah and 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 doesn't i mean the justice him or herself doesn't even authorize the syllabus so it's not even clear you know the origin does it not circle back to the court to I think that they they approve it, but don't write it. But yeah, I don't yeah. know. I, I think Rennell has done a lot of work on this. Really? Rennell Anderson Jones yeah. on 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 what it means that the syllabus both both you know summarizes the case, but nobody is responsible for it. I think right. it's another piece of this bait and switch thing. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. like the credentialing thing where you sort of have a system that is supposed to be making clear what the court is right. doing, but it's a completely opaque system that raises more problems. But, but there is it's not completely opaque from the perspective of the baseline of x years ago because because the transcript is coming out the same day it's posted on the web the justices names are in the transcript audio is available on the court's website on fridays afternoons Where right news goes to die right Friday okay that's uh, right. fair enough uh, but a person who is interested in a particular case mm-hmm. who wants to like i feel like as a resource for me as a law teacher, when I can send students to listen to either at a, the OIA.org website, or if it's a more recent case, it's going to be on a Friday. So this term I used, you know, I had my students listen to an argument a few days after it was posted on that Friday. I, that that was great for me as a resource. So I think that if you if you pick and I don't know what the exact baseline date would be, but I do feel like there's been a marked increase in the uh, in the accessibility of court materials. I, I, I don't understand, for example, why they aren't putting on the court's website 
the hard copy for the bench statements that they read because mm-hmm. those I think they do prepare themselves right, right? They and do. so unlike the syllabus the the statement that they read from the bench what why aren't that now the audio just a total transcript of the court each day that it sits right that's right. what it would be the same thing but that's what you're talking that, about yeah. right um, but and and the audios for some of those I think are at oye.org but I think it's quite a while after the fact. Right. And so it would be nice, and now I'm sort of jumping to your side of the, you know, the time you do it matters. So having that, having that, sta- the hard copy of that bench statement and the opinion and seeing what they emphasize and what they don't, seeing different phrasings, oh, knowing, yeah. being able to hear what they say from the bench to see if they extemporaneize it all based right. on what they handed out. All of these different ways of thinking about it would be interesting. Right. And I think we should, we have more of them than we used to, but we don't have all of them. Right. So I would rather have all of them and too. And not at the same time. I mean, I think that uh, we've, we already have one example where the court, be, uh, through the delay, has been able to somewhat change the history of what happened in the court. This is the court protester who stood up. Right. What do you say? Right. I rise to do so and so, right, so right. and so. Right. And that does not appear in the transcript no. and was ex- excerpted from the uh, from right. the audio. Right. Well, we, and you've got the co- and press coverage about the fact that the court changes its opinions. Right. Right. To, to correct, oh, right. yeah, yeah. you know, mistakes, correct. and that's yeah. not tracked really carefully. And so, you know, Richard Lazarus has written a piece about it. There's a, so yeah, that I mean, and that's troubling. So the the myth of the myth the the image of the court's transparency. We're the most transparent branch of government. Well, and unless you're editing opinions and not telling anyone about the changes, that's not the most transparent. Right. And to, to that, I would really add the justices' speeches. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is unbelievable to me that they can go off and give speeches. And not only are the press not alerted to where they're going, but there's no transcript. There's no text of a speech. I mean, you know, you can't get them. Right. And then, you know, Nina and that should just be posted on the website. Of course it should. And, and the idea that that isn't part of, you know, the public face of the court is bananas. And I think it goes a little bit, Joe, to, we were talking before we started podcasting about, you know, the justices are so anxious about, you know, they'll get up and they'll make a speech and then they're just, what? That went public? You know, Clarence Thomas comes and <laughs> right. speaks at the Federalist Society at UVA, and it's all, you know, closed off the books, and there's no record of it, except Politico runs the totality of speech the next day. <laughs> and Justice Thomas is like, what? What happened? Right. People are running my speeches? And then, you know, you get some stringer who happens to be in Montana hearing a speech and gets things wrong. Justice Scalia did this. There's no other record of it. So that person who, you know, has little bits and pieces of Scalia's uh, uh, piece, who's not a court reporter, becomes the only source of information. And then the justices, again, are infuriated that we're getting their speeches wrong. But yeah. good grief, put up your speech and we <laughs> right. can see it. Right. Well, doesn't this yeah, go what to... What could we possibly do about the fact that I'm being misquoted? Doesn't right. this go to the more general question, which I don't know if you want to get into, but like the, the question that you have to ask before you can determine whether that process of giving speeches and not having them fully reported or or having them be private or whatever it uh it's fundamental to that is is um what is the supreme court like what is it for uh what kind of institution is it because of course congress people have private speeches in front of donors um uh you know Mitt romney had a famous private speech was was not so private uh after a while um but I, i don't know that anyone thinks it's necessarily unseemly um, that a congressperson, maybe they do, uh, can have speeches only to targeted groups. Um, 
the president has, I guess, some private meetings. There's certain, you know, lobbyists have access. You know, the court is all, has always been different. And I think, you know, we, we haven't had a show about it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people listening to this show are law students or law profs or lawyers. So they've all been through kind of the distinctive characteristics of courts and the different theories about what courts are for. But I don't know. I mean, you, you seem to have a pretty, you know, um, uh, clear drive, you know, a journalist drive towards transparency. But is that compatible with what the Supreme Court is meant to do? No, I listen, this is the for me, the central paradox of what yeah. the court does is that the court all of the court's public esteem and respect lies in the fact that it's different, right? It doesn't yeah. go give off the book speeches to donors and shill for money. And then the justices like write autobiographies and they're shilling for money, right? Yeah. Like the justices say, Oh, we don't go on television except for when they're promoting their books. So I think it's that real paradox of in order to have, you know, public integrity and respect, right? Neither purse nor sword. What we have is our differentness and our differentness, unfortunately, is all bound up in this oracular, you know, vision right. of that. As completely apolitical, you know, we strip down like runners, we put on our robes, mm-hmm. and then we just, when we're not, you know, making law, we're reading law. That's all we do. Emerging and, from behind the red curtains right. in our marble temple. And, and, and yeah. I think that anything they do to violate that norm that they've constructed for themselves, that they require in order to be legitimate, is a problem. So I think that there's either you don't do television interviews, you know, you don't go on wait, wait, don't tell me in Sesame yeah. Street and all the stuff that they do, mm-hmm. or you do it and recognize that those actions are political and their intention with the view of the court as something not political. But I think, you know, it's part of one of the things that's deeply frustrating to me is it's this attempt to both suck and blow. You know, we want to be, right, this is Justice Scalia's when when he wrote his little jacques, you know, like yeah. when he wouldn't recuse himself from Ooh, the Newdow case. Right. And he was like, look, I got to be able to pal, pal around with all the hotshots in Washington because that's, <laughs> who that's else is going to be my yeah. friend? You know, and it's like, <laughs> but, you know, understand, like there's a cost to that in terms of legitimacy and integrity. And I think that, you know, they want it both ways. They want to have public lives. They want to have political, you know, statements. Justice Scalia wants to interview with Jennifer Sr. in New York Magazine and tell her about what he thinks about the devil. And that's fine. But to think that that doesn't clash with this fundamental notion that justices are above all that, I think is bonkers. I'm just wondering if that's going away. This is so, you know, the, the old... You know, the old notion, which is uh, uh, that justices are finding the law, not making it, that they are interpreting documents using expert techniques in ways that are inaccessible to mere mortals and that those documents compel results. I think most people understand that's not what's going on. Most people understand that there is a kind of politics at work in the court's decisions. Um, is it Jack Balkan and others who refer to it as a high politics? You know, it sounds a little bit more elitist than I think it's intended to be. It's just a different kind of politics. Uh, that these are decisions which involve policy weighing, but in a different way than than a legislator would weigh policy, and 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 in a constrained way. And lots of people have tried over many many years to specify the nature of judicial constraint. Um, sometimes more successfully, sometimes less. But still, I guess that you know when we when these controversies arise, the the old kind of polar uh, norms are always trotted out. Are you know the, the the judges did the wrong thing here because in fact they should be right the the expert interpreters who are isolated from everything, or uh, the the other the polar opposite. They are really just politicians in robes, right? Where the truth may be that the court is a different kind of institution, and is there a harm in the public appreciating that and accepting that? Because everything seems to be aimed at like bulking up the Supreme Court's uh, legitimacy, 
by hiding the fact that they're making policy decisions and political decisions. You know, this is the balls and strikes comment at the confirmation hearing. I assume that, like, you also think that, you know, the courts are are engaged in a lot, not just the Supreme Court, but even lower courts, but especially in the Supreme Court, an awful lot of political decision-making of a certain type. And if that's the case, and maybe you disagree, I'm putting words in your mouth, but uh, if that's the case, you're waving. Yeah, so just so that I can jump in after you're done talking. Oh, no, you should just break in. Just break in. Well, well, I wanted to make a third point, which is in between um, these two that there there can be something... Whether or not you, whichever uh, side of the paradox you were describing, whichever side you find yourself on, I think the hardest thing to try to defend is I want to be able to go out and engage with members of the public. And I also want there to be no reporting on it. Like that seems to me to be the worst possible thing to try to defend in all of this. If you, if your view of your job as a judge is that you need to isolate yourself, I think that's defensible. If your view of your job as a judge is that you need to engage with people in a very important way, I think that's also completely defensible. My, uh, it's hard to do both, but I think either is. But to say I want to engage and for no one to be able to hear it except the person who I am publicly but privately trying to engage with, because I think when you say what's the court and what's a judge, and I mean, the thing that perhaps in a Pollyanna way that leaps into my mind is about, well, you know, first and foremost, you're a judge who decides cases. And that means you pick a winner and a loser in a dispute. And that means people need to know that you're independent and neutral in for some important meanings of those two words. And do you think the Supreme Court is that? Do you think that's their main job is to decide cases? Because that's what Justice Thomas said when he visited I, the law school. I think that... I, I, think, I don't think so, though. I, I, don't, I think it is, um, it is not their main job. But it is a necessary part of their job that is to decide cases. I think their main job is to explain the way they decide them in a way that plays in a different role in a, in a, in a very complex machinery of day-to-day and year-to-year and maybe decade-to-decade politics. But I think they can't just, you know, back to the old advisory opinion thing and for Washington, right? They can't just opine about things. They, they do it all in the context of deciding individual disputes. So is that the main thing they do? No. Is it a necessary step in what they do? Yes. And so people who, you know, do I think, you mentioned Scalia in the New Dow case, do I think this person can be fair in my dispute about X, whatever X is? Well, if, if one of the things I'm trying to wrestle with when I'm trying to answer that question is, well, they, get, they give a bunch of speeches to these groups, but they never let anyone know what they are. Mm-hmm. what the speeches are. Well, gosh, maybe then the, then I think they can't be fair because they keep talking to this group called the Federal Society or they keep talking to this group called the American Constitution Society. What are these people about? Who are they? Why can't I see what they said? Right, and if they are going to talk to ACS, I need to see what they said because then right. you they're indebted and they're beholden and that becomes... And this is right. One of my favorite moments of, of, of this problem is Justice... Alito going to talk to the American spectator and some reporter with a, you know, just a a little phone, camera phone is taking pictures saying, is this appropriate? And Alito's response is so precious because he's like, this isn't news. And he's just like, this isn't, why (laughs) are you, why are you even thinking this is news? And it's like, 
really, I think they don't, A, they don't, to me, the two things are going on. A, they don't have any sense that there's no such thing as private spaces anymore. The technology has precluded and obviated the possibility that they can go off to a group and say something and nobody's going to find out. And that astonishes them. But then over and above that, I think they do have this sense that it's really not news or interesting that they go off to these places. And, right. you know, and, and both of those things, I think, work in tandem to show you how, how clueless they are about, you know, what violence it does to the notion that they are judges. They are yeah. above the fray. When they both give these off-the-book speeches to, to groups, to political groups, and also that they're mystified that that, <laughs> that, that would alarm people. It just tells yeah. me how, you know, and one other thing just to push back a little on what Christian said, you know, I don't think it's the case that this is a new thing, right? Like you read you know, the books about the FDR appointees, and, you know, there's Black and Douglas and, you know, Robert Jackson, and they're screaming at each other and <laughs> swearing at each other and, like, playing yeah. poker with reporters and hemorrhaging. You know, so it's not yeah. like there was this golden age where the court was above the fray, and, you know, now it's different, and we're, you know... in I, I think this court in reaction to those eras, in reaction to the brethren, right? Where everybody's, like, swiping and sniping and, yeah. and leaking to the press, is trying to look... Like it's above that. And I think that's kind of the paradox. I think that this is an aspirational thing to say yeah. that there have been periods in the history of the court where they've been <laughs> nothing but, you know, brilliant, learned men and there was no politics. It's always political. Mm -hmm. I think the court now is caught up in this weird myth making where it wants to deny that. And yet it's the behavior is sort of recklessly political at the same yeah, time. Yeah, what I was trying to give voice to is maybe the, the idea that we all know that they make policy choices, but maybe there's some value in the myth. It's like Plato's myth of the metals, right? That there's some, like, there's some social interest in pretending that they are up, truly above the fray and that their decisions are basically discovered. You know, they're built into the fabric of, if not the universe, our constitution, and they, they decide on that basis. Right. I, I don't think so, but I think that there, it's a non-trivial argument, I think, to say that there is no value in, uh, in having that social uh, But it doesn't myth. have to be a myth, right? It can, you can say in a very, in a very pragmatic way, um, look, uh, these folks can't be fired um, and they can't be, constructively fired by having their wages cut right um and so there's a sense in which they can't be bought uh so the the most important way that you could improperly influence somebody's been taken off the table so in that sense they can be independent in what they're doing right so this isn't about myths it's just pragmatics right, right? if you're worried about would would is somebody making a, a decision for the wrong reason well we've taken some of those wrong reasons they're just completely off the table Good. That sounds great. Right. Cool. All right. Now, what else can I learn about how they work and what they do? And so I don't, it seems like you can have very straightforward, uh, again, pragmatic ways of thinking about their job and how they do it without, uh, without having to engage either in myth making or, or deception or, or, um, you know, weird storytelling. I think I agree with you, but it, so, you know, these are people who are given authority over a certain number of political questions, questions involving free expression and race and some other things for various reasons. So there's not all questions, but some questions they're given yeah. authority and we give them every tool, right? We give them every tool to make those decisions based on their own principles, which are not fully determined in any text, right? They come from their life experience, their understanding of how one responds to text, their understanding of what American society is all, you know, there are lots of things which bear on it, but we right. give them every tool. 
to allow uh, to give them space not to be impinged upon by the passions of the times, right? Uh, and there's a use for that institution, we think. And I think its use has been proven at times and destructive at times. It's a complicated story. Um, but, you know, given that, given that, that if that's the institution and that we give them those kinds of tools, that we expect them to, to engage in a kind of principled politicking amongst themselves, I actually don't know if I have a real problem with, you know, Scalia's speech about um, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, it was right before the case. It's a tricky one. But in general, I, I do see a role for the court in more informal uh, instances of teaching about values and principles because they're the ones we give the tools to do that. You know, academics are kind of like that, you know, with tenure, but it's not the same. We don't have nearly as much influence, uh, obviously. Uh, but uh, um, so yeah. I think it is true that there's something, you know, it's, uh, you know, my judge has been caught up in some of these things a couple of times now. And th there is something um, which is a little bit foolish about not realizing in, the, in this day and age that what you say even a private in a private gathering will only be private for so long. Um, but I think maybe something has been lost. I think there may be some value in even these public figures who are given this unique role and all these tools to do it as best they can, according to principle, can't teach in smaller settings without worrying that everything goes out to everyone. You know, I just think in my own life, like I say lots of stuff in class. I warn them in advance. I say lots of stupid things, partly to get them to say stuff, right? Because everybody's worried they're going to say something stupid. Right. And I, and it's a, it's a real benefit that I teach students in small batches so people can kind of speak up and try things out. Now, maybe you think we don't want Supreme Court justices to try stuff out. You know, they, they speak for all the people. We want to maintain this kind of fairness illusion and all of this, but, or, you know, actuality. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it can be an isolating job. You've got just the nine and, and maybe your smaller individual social circle. But I think maybe there's some value to allowing them to speak in private or in, in public-private settings about ideas, understanding that, yes, guess what? Scalia has firm views about guns and race and, sure. uh, and prayer and religion. He's got – it should come as no surprise to anyone because he has those views. Does that mean he shouldn't be able to rule on a case that involves those issues? No. But but I think yeah. you know, and I think you're you're hitting on something which is the sort of flip of what we're saying, which is they they shouldn't be behaving you know in these unseemly ways and going to these unseemly places. But then at the same time, we're invariably criticizing them for being too isolated, right? Right, they, right? they don't engage with the world. They have these you know sycophant clerks who agree with everything they say. There's no one. Uh, telling them no, you know, they, they don't. One of the huge complaints, I think, that is legitimate complaints that's emerged in the last couple of years is they only read magazines that agree with them. They only listen to news stations that agree with them, right? They've completely hydroponically sealed them off. Like so, a lot of us, by the yeah, way. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, talk about the sort of epistemic closure that you're seeing in the rest of the world. You're seeing it at the court. And maybe it would be a good thing if Scalia went and talked to ACS. Right. And, you know, Ginsburg went to the Federalist Society and they... This is another reason, by the way, to know where they're going so that you can ask them. Someone could make an inquiry of the justices, but who knows whether they'd answer it. But I noticed that you've never spoken at this group, but you've consistently spoken at that group. Why is that? Right. Right. But you can't, if yeah, I, I think yeah. they should, I think they can and should engage a lot. I'm a huge, I love the fact that Justice Sotomayor has written this book about her life and that she talks to kids about the things that, that have happened to her 
It's so powerful. I love that she does that. Here's what I don't think any of them should be doing. Any of that stuff and then pretending it isn't happening or hiding it or not being completely transparent about it. Or saying that it's apolitical, right? I think that that's, you know, to say that it's the same thing to go talk to PS number 49, which, you know, we can all say is fine. That's a really different thing than talking at a fundraiser for, you know, a lobby group. And I think that, you know, the suggestion that my mere presence in the room renders this apolitical it's yeah. got to be wrong, I think. Yeah, because that's like trying to have it both ways, right? right? It's trying right. to have the oracular version at the same time that you have the wise and policymaker and the political actor, just another human being version of judging. I, yeah. Can I say one other thing about the myth making? Absolutely. I you, think can say, is, let me, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> this is in the non-cranky uh, column. But I think one other thing that's really interesting, because Joe, you made the important you know, point that there is a lot of myth making going on here. I think I would be remiss if I didn't say the biggest myth makers or the biggest colluders in the myth making of the oracular court are off in the press, right? And mm-hmm. one of the huge criticisms of the Supreme Court press corps is that we more than anyone bend over backward to cover the court as though it's magic, you know, as though it's this transcendent truth and that, you know, we really do uh, elide over the fact that Thomas hasn't talked for years. You know, when Ginny Thomas uh, uh, drunk dialed uh, uh, Anita Hill, Hill, you know, and they called all the press corps and they're like, what was that about? We were like, no, not my beat, not my beat. You know, like Mm -hmm. this, we don't talk about this stuff. And I always think the best example of that is that many of us don't even cover confirmation hearings because those are political and we don't do political. We write about the Constitution. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't realized that. In the the episode of the show, which I was not going to bring up because I don't want to embarrass Dahlia, and it's where where I gave my theory of Dahlia Lithwick, (laughs) right? I actually think that, that that your writing and increasingly others writing too is contra to that myth. I mean, I, as a law student, uh, um, because I went to law school late, uh, I was reading your, uh, you remember when they, they had to go to the DC circuit, I mentioned this in the show, right? And you wrote that piece about how they look so old and they were having to march up, you know, instead of coming out, emerging from their curtains, they had to walk up this thing. And, um, and that really struck a chord with me. I remember it to this day, just because it, uh, you know, your writing humanizes the justices in a way that I think chips away at that. Uh, oracular myth. So well, I, is I it changing in general? Or, I, yeah. I have, I, there's no doubt that that's something I've really worked to do to say, I, I, I had my, my sort of cliche about this was always most of us who cover the Supreme court, cover the court as though, uh, the law is alive and the justices are dead. You know, like, we will be like, oh my God, did you see what happened to the dormant commerce clause? All of us just flipping out and nobody noticing that Clarence Thomas, you know, was asleep. So I think that there is uh, this tendency, and I think it's, you know, for good reasons, good noble reasons, this was a, like a classic Linda Greenhouse, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not interesting that the clerks aren't minorities. It's not interesting. That's not a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's What's interesting is what happened to the law that day, and that's this is a holdover from Tony Lewis. I mean, I think this is, you know, the great Supreme Court reporters report on the law, but I think that what's lost in that is some of this. You, yeah. you know, these are real people, and there are real conflicts. Right. And <laughs> really, really, when Sotomayor asks a ten minute question, the chief. <laughs> goes crazy yeah. and that's worth writing about but um I <laughs> the think court it- is just another institution that produces information like all the other institutions in government right and imagine trying to report on congress by just reading statutes right Right. It would be a very impoverished understanding. Or even reading the congressional record of speech, member speeches, oh, yeah. although omitting their names. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, it would be a bizarre... Without noting that there was no one there and there, conversations right. were happening in the cloakroom or in 
individual offices. And the funny thing is, most people would quickly say, "Wait, you guys are not actually reporting on what's happening." Like everyone else would say, "Well, you guys are nuts. Why are you writing stories like this? Because it's not real." Whereas people haven't responded that way. I guess in part, well, many people have not responded that way. Perhaps more of them are now, or they're seeking out people who write differently about the court uh, as a way to convey that they are interested in a different kind of coverage. Um, but but that suggests that to the degree that people feel satisfied by the uh, the older style of reporting, that suggests they're they're actually participating in the myth. Mm-hmm. Like they like it. They like that their court is like that for them. Um, because the court doesn't make it makes no sense if it's not that. If you don't simultaneously hold both of those irreconcilable ideas in your head all the time, the court is totally political. It's a political institution mm-hmm. driven by political, you know, norms and values, and also it's oracular and it's different. And at its best, it's doing something more than that. Both those things are always true. I mean, my yeah. favorite my favorite book title is Keith Bybee, you know, uh, uh, at Syracuse, wrote this book, All Judges Are Political Except When They're Not. <laughs> and I think that's exactly it. You know, the court is an utterly political institution, except for the times when it's so much better than that. Mm-hmm. And both those things are true. But I think the aspirational part of it, that the court is better than that, if we didn't have some notion that that was going on, it would not be a court. But that's that it's that notion which kind of helps to build the wall between the court's kind of politics and legislative style politics. And what's frustrating is that we can't understand that there is a different kind of politics that the court should be expected to engage in, which is nonetheless politics. It is nonetheless choice between competing alternatives, uh, some of which some people may agree with and others of which other people may agree with who are you know equally of good faith. Um, so why but, don't we use the word policy instead of politics? Because those do sound like different things to me. When you say the word politics, it covers everything from the disagreement that you just described, a, a di- different ways of a, a, a synthesizing and harmonizing competing uh, yeah, yeah. demands, and Tammany Hall sort of raw-knuckles partisan politics. The word politics covers all of that. The word policy, I think, doesn't cover all of it. Yeah, here it I'd covers tr- the first yeah. segment of it. I'd get in trouble with like philosophers and political scientists, but for me, politics is about the method of choosing between competing policies, uh, each of which is potentially open, right? In other words, not con- not not ruled out by principle. So, if you have policies A, B, and C, which are possibilities, politics for me is the process of choosing between those policies, and the court does that, and it does it through a fairly, you know, generic political means. We get uh, an institution of, of people and they vote, right? But we expect them to engage in a kind of reasoned deliberation. It's not enough just to vote, right? You have to say, what, well, you don't have to, right. but the norm is that you say why. Right. And that's special, right? It's, it's, it's one of the many mechanisms, and maybe including the marble temple, that helps to distinguish that kind of politics from legislative politics but i don't mind calling them by the same name because maybe by you know maybe it would elevate legislative politics a little bit i think that's also a sacred (laughs) obligation right it's choosing between policies which which are not totally unconstrained you're not totally unconstrained in your choice among policies right because you can't choose to uh draft a law which uh enacts segregation right i mean that's that's not open to you and so juries aren't doing politics because they're not choosing among policies they're they're choosing verdicts that like there's liability or no liability I'm not so sure. Where would sure. you put them? Well, it depends on, you know, if you bring a nullification into it. it um, it's. I mean, in a tort case, it could be the 
predicate for a, a huge change in the way airbags are put in cars. Or, I mean, so in a sense, they are doing broad policy choices, I think, even in cases that don't involve something like nullification. Yeah, like like with many things, I'll be talking out of school, but my, but my understanding of juries is that there's a lot of relatively unconstrained decision-making going on, right? The law is this information put into the into the pot by the judge, and inside of that sealed pot, all kinds of politicking goes on. But we, we I don't know. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to go too far with that. I didn't think you were talking about politics as constraint. I thought you were saying it's choice among policies. Like you're yeah. saying, to, you say Miller don't use the word policy to talk about what judges do to distinguish from I politics. Would never, I would never call you Miller. Because the po- no, you'd call me out of sense. Because right. the because po- the po- the word politics is choices among policies. So legislators are doing politics because they're choosing among policies. So are judges, you say. Yeah. Um, and so you don't want to use the word. Pol- what I'm suggesting is it would be helpful to have finer grained words because I think in the in most people's minds the word politics is about the partisan electoral stuff. Mm-hmm. It's about Eric Canner losing to Professor Bratt. And whatever may follow from that, it's not about a, a collegial court with a panel of three judges making a decision in a case about ERISA, even though yeah. it might be choices among policies that are underdetermined. Yeah, I may tell you, maybe you have a view about this, but I, it's partly a semantic debate, but I would like to rescue politics from the idea of, you know, just partisan warfare, which is essentially disconnected from substance, I think. Even legislative politics could use a well, anyway. Go ahead. No, I think it's a good point. I, you know, I, what's interesting to me is I also think there's two kinds of politics at work at the court. Right? There's politics that is ideology. You know, I just think the church wins. You know, I just think that the era of uh, racism in this country is over. Mm-hmm. That's politics, and that's I think probably we have to call that politics. And then I think there's the other kind of politics which I miss at the court, which is the sort of political, you know, hand slapping, you know, back slapping Brennan politics. So I think, you know, I have no problem with a court that is within the confines of the way it behaves with each each other, sort of political. And I actually think this court is not political. I think that there's very little small p politics happening at this court. I think there was some notion that Elena Kagan was going to be the new Bill Brennan. You know, she was going to be able to come in and work her magic and form coalitions where they hadn't existed and find intermediate spaces of agreement. You know, I think... I think that one of the things that has been lost at the court is the skills of politics. Mm. The ability to say, you know what, if the three of us get together, we might be all the right Casey. You know, right. like I think that's gone. And yeah. and I don't know what is to Is it call- gone because they're not talking with each other? We were talking about this in a completely different context, but it, is it like a family that doesn't talk? And 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 they just send out these like are, do, have they so in, in, internalized this oracular vision that they basically send out principled memos which state you know or apparently principled memos and then there isn't like a a self conscious wrangling with the fact that these principles are the result of choice and maybe I can convince you to sign on to I don't know how does that. Do you have a sense? I, I think a big part of it really is that this is the first court in history that's go, got no politicians on it. So yeah. I think that, that one of the, the skills that is They don't have the skills, When yeah. you don't have an O'Connor on the court, right? This is the, the persistent complaint about McCutcheon in the campaign finance cases, is that if you don't understand politics, mm-hmm. don't write about politics. <laughs> and it's really, I think, the case that, uh, you know, yes, I think ideologies are frozen in amber in a way that we haven't probably seen in a while at the court, but and, and nobody's moving. Yeah. And, and the idea that Kennedy looks persuadable doesn't 
make it a political enterprise. Yeah. Um, but I think that that, uh, so the skills are gone too. I think that if you have people who have only respectfully come up through academia or the judicial branch, I think there are some horse trading skills that are, are missing. Yeah. And I actually do think, I mean, just going back to the way, you know, because you said the way Kagan writes is really interesting. And I was telling Christian the other day, she has a tick that I love, which is she writes in the second person. So she writes, imagine you are, there's yeah. a lot of that. I think that's politics. You know, mm. what I call, you know, just the right. persuasion. But I think there's a, I think what, what has evaporated at the court is that art of, I'm going to take half of what I want uh, in order to move something. And I think, I think it's better to be right yeah. than to fix things now. And I don't know. In their minds. In their minds. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's what's missing. So I don't, I feel like I've derailed your politics policy. No, idea, no, but no. I, I think that politics Thankfully, probably. operates on two levels at the court. And I think... I think it's very, very interesting that I really, you know, I, I think O'Connor is the most missed justice in the sense of she got stuff done because she right. could build a coalition. And I, that is over. It's yeah. over. And the notion that she was replaced by such a sourpuss. Oh, see, it's just, <laughs> um, how many Supreme Court justices are you going to slam explicitly? <laughs> um, how how you, are we ever going to get any justices on this show? Another thing. Good, good question. <laughs> yeah, another yeah. thing it's I want to do ones. is correct the record. Because you, you, you implied that I implied that there was something. By you, you mean me. Second yeah, person doesn't work. There was something, there was something uh, <laughs> that, that you, Christian, impl- implied that I implied about denigrating politics. Far from it. I, I, I actually... I'm a huge fan of day-to-day politics and and the importance of day-to-day politics in our constitutional uh, structure and in our our nation's history and in our future. And uh, so, you know, I didn't mean by anything I said before to say, you know, politics is a bad word because it refers to a bad thing and therefore you shouldn't refer to this thing I like. Uh, judging with this word that refers to things I don't. That's no, not what no, I meant du- at duly all. noted, I won't hold you accountable okay. for anything that you said. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so we, we are drawing... So annoying. We're drawing close to a close <laughs> of part one of our 10-part series with Molly. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I think we, we remiss, though. You're here. If we don't discuss, like, briefly, the merits of it, like, at least one case. Okay. People would, I think people would be upset, don't you? Would they revolt, you think, Joe? They might. I don't know. I don't know. So, I don't know. I'm going to give both of you the option, and you'll use your political horse trading skills to determine whether we talk about guns or religion. Hmm. They're, uh, they're intimately related, so any conversation oh. about one will be a conversation about both. Well, I would like intimately. to hear Booyah. about that. Hmm? I, would, yeah, I, would. I would actually like to just hear your... Your discursion the- on the relationship between guns and religion, because <laughs> I was, my brain didn't go there, but no. I, I like it. No. Hmm. Okay. Do well, you I'm- feel strongly that they're intimately related? Well, I, look, I feel I it it, it uh, my I I do feel that um, the cons the 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 subgroups of the population in the United States that feel very passionately about those two things seem to overlap a lot. Right. This is Obama's guns and gods. And that suggests, right? well, on both sides, yeah. right? So it suggests to me that it's, you know, this Pew study that's come out today that people are talking about, about polarization and po- the, pol- the increase I'm in I'm irritated by some reporting on that, by the way, the, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. The, the increase in polarization uh, and the increase in uh, pol- part, political party identification with those more increasingly polarized groups and the peop- the motives people attribute to one another across those the divide that separates those two groups now more than it used to. Um, so yeah, I think the party of of you know God and guns and no gays, and the party of 
you know, a different kind of God and I really don't want to see that gun and what's wrong with our gay brothers and sisters. Um, yeah, those are two very different worldviews. And so, yeah, I think if you're talking about one issue in that issue package that that greatly separates these two groups, of course you're talking about all of them. Because I mean, they're I wanna, so highly I correlated. My, I want to give my correlation is not causation speech. I mean, I, I think that's right. I think they map. And I make no causal yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I inference think, I think or assertion. It's hard for me to, it is really hard for me to understand why the, 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 the package goes together. I mean, I just feel like... Um, but empirically, it does, uh, it does doesn't does. it? I have, I have a crazy, I have a crazy okay, theory about Christian this. Theory. I have a crazy theory about this. Well, oh, it's cool. not really... No, but I think there are um, there are people who are more concerned about collective action than there are other people. There are people who believe that we can do things together as a whole country that will be positive, and there are other people who fear that kind of thing, right? And that those... That yin and yang is present in all of us individually and has been present in the country since the founding, right? The, right. the need to do things all together and the need to be fearful of too much collective power. Indeed, if what you said is true about all of us individually, it's been true in every country since every country's respective founding. Because it's always true wherever there are people. That's right. right. And, but I think that two, I think that that guns... And religion are both ways that Americans have typically expressed an individualistic rather than a collective uh, identity, mm-hmm. right? And um, and Hobby Lobby in particular is about right. religion as the ability to withdraw from collective regulation, right? right? right. Um, whereas Town of Greece is about uh, religion as an opportunity to create our own collective, right? To, to establish the collective, Uh you know, people are on different sides of this. That's why I'm kind of hedging here because uh, it's a, not a clean. There's this old idea about um, uh, in the literature about you know property as exit. That that property is a right. way that you can withdraw. Mm-hmm. Private property mm-hmm. is a way that you can withdraw. And it's funny because each of like guns as exit, religion as exit, property as exit. There seem to be many ways in which people can construct this. That's the way I withdraw uh, from public life into private life. Um, or that's the way I signal that it is important that there is a private life that is withdrawn from a public life. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's fascinating Although, to although think about. what's, of course, interesting about that is that the cutting-edge fights about both guns are and religion carry. are, I want to take my property in the public sphere right. because to take away my right to do to carry my gun at target right. or to force you to listen to my prayer is a violation not just right. of my property rights but of my no. you know my civil basic so, civil rights. so my exit but is a bubble is actually a bubble around me that has to go everywhere exactly. with me my very ostentatious exit is right. always present even in public right. it is I a bizarre that's turn stand of your ground yeah. too right uh, absolutely stand your ground is here's my yeah. castle my castle's everywhere and and everywhere i go <laughs> i take my gun and my god and you know right. and but, you endure that because because yeah. my rights are at stake. I mean, I think we talk, I, I think this came up when we were talking to Nathan about the town of Greece case, but that, um, so I may be making the point again, and it, and it may be totally wrong, as most of the things I say are, but um, uh, I, fear is at work here, right? So there is, you know, the desire to be able to ha- define my own life as an individual is a very strong desire, and more so on the part of some people than others for psychological and social reasons. And when you are fearful that the collective will grow to the point where that individual bubble is gone, that's when you not only push to preserve that individual space, you know, Heller, Hobby Lobby, but you try to normalize your views, right? To try to change the collective, to fend it off, right? So it's like going on the offensive, right? And so open carry demonstrations are about normal, you know, it's 
be it, okay. It's a safety and numbers point. Right. Right. No, who's going to have a, what they would consider a stupid assault weapons ban or something like that? If people see assault weapons all the time and they know they aren't scary because most people who are carrying guns in public are good guys. Right. Uh, that, I think, is not about establishing a, a collective rule that everybody has to carry guns so much it is almost prophylactic against the worry that the collective is going to come in and steal my or take away my my assault weapons. And the same thing with town of Greece. I think that case is you know, partly the reason for this is and, and the political reason in that town for having these speeches, the, the, the invocations at the beginning of the town meetings was a fear about losing control of one's children and families and losing what was special about religion uh, for people. I, so it's understandable to me that the reaction would be to try to create a collective rule, even though it seems um, uh, sometimes illogical, right? Given the, the attachment to the individual right to try to create a collective rule and impose your own religion on others, whether it's by denying gay marriage or or uh, um, as there was one town which tried to require everybody to have a gun in Georgia. Do you right. remember this? Yeah. Right. yeah. So it seems totally at odds with the fundamental principle of individual, you know, reliance, which seems, but it's totally understandable as a psychological uh, point. If you understand people as feeling somewhat under attack or fearful. So uh, where, so, so Dahlia, where in light of all that, where a month from now, where where when all these cases have been decided that are outstanding, where do you think we're going to be on some of these things? Well, I, I mean, I think I, I feel that Hobby Lobby, I, I feel that it's going to come down in a way that, you know, we fear and that and that, you know, just going to Christian's point, I think that, you know, we, we don't see when we talk about religious majorities, we don't see that this case would come down a really different way. If it and, by, and by we there, you mean we hippie we liberals? Majority, and, yeah, uh, no, <laughs> I mean, I think I think that, well, actually, I was going to say quite the opposite, which okay. is I think, you know, had Hobby Lobby been argued instead of by the Green family, you know, by a Muslim family who wanted their employees to wear burqas, this would be a very different case at the court. And so I think, you know, one of the things that worries me about the discourse at the court right now I think I wrote about this a few weeks ago, that there was an amazing three-week span in which three different justices accused the other side of not seeing. Yes. Um, And I just think, you know, that there is this strange blindness, and you can sort of track it back to what we're talking about with the polarization. But, you know, I think both sides more and more are saying, you don't see my world. You know, I thought Sonia Sotomayor's uh, dissent, you know, about the the, uh, Michigan affirmative action case was Mm -hmm. in the stark... Version, version of and certainly that. Certainly Kagan and Town of Greece. And, and, and saying, like, how can you not see what my life is like, what I experience? Right. And so I just think that, that, that Hobby Lobby is going to be another iteration of that, you know, like, and I think uh, uh, we're just going to split more and more into the justices who see people like them. This is very depressing. I'm what's, sorry. And what's interesting is what <laughs> you just said about I told Hobby you Lobby. Was going there. What, what's brilliant about what you just said about Hobby Lobby? Inadvertently brilliant. A, a brilli- uh, no, a, a thing that a brilliant characteristic of it is that it will be right no matter who wins. Right. Right. You can count on whoever is on the short end of it to say you don't see right the the really critical thing about the light this life in the way you're ruling. Right. Or you would rule for me. You right. would rule the way I think you should rule. Right. So how should that be decided to well, avoid the depressing? One, well, other, go thing ahead, yeah. that, one other thing about that, I, I find Hobby Lobby so interesting because we can't question the faith of the Greens. We right. just take it, right? So there's this deeper level of not seeing, which is the court willfully saying, we take you at your word that this is your religious conviction. And so I think that there's this, you know, the court willfully blinds itself 
to anything that sort of comes up under this valence of this is my religious preference. We have no choice, right? right. I mean, that's 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 right. Glenn's. It's part of the free exercise right. jurisprudence right. is that we don't question it. No, but it's just so. I think that the, the, one of the reasons the religion cases are so hard is the court enters it saying, "I don't see." Mm. Right? There's, I, I I'm not going to dispute this, right? And then the SG is arguing Hobby Lobby just completely in deference to you know we're going to just stipulate that they say this is an abortifacient and it is. Yeah, and, and that's think, different. That's that's a claim about. Empirical reality, well, that's right? It. Yeah, but it yeah. all gets swept under this idea of we're just not even going to probe this thing. And so I think, I think what I want to say about that is that the burden of persuasion also evaporates there, right? Once you just concede that we can't be in the business of even asking, because even if empirically, you know, an IUD ain't causing abortions, right. that's off the table. And I right. think one of the, you know, I really felt this so strongly um, with with the with the uh, uh, you know, the, the checkbox argument that just the mere act of checking this box is enabling people to have abortions. And right. I remember writing a piece saying, explain. Yep. Like, you have the burden of explaining to me why. No, we don't. That's what we believe. Right. And yeah, so I how think the Seventh was, Circuit really ex- dismembered that argument right. in the, and I think it was a Posner opinion, it who was. really just sort of calmly but determinedly went through and sort of said, that doesn't make sense. But, but how can you make, so if we put them to the burden of telling us how this creates a religious injury right. in such a way that it exposes a decision for the court, which is not an ecclesiastical decision. That's the trick, right? It is not possible. But I just think that the problem that I'm really feeling this year with this uptick of religious liberty cases, these conscience clause cases, is that if you can't probe the facts and there's no burden on you to explain the facts, then I don't know what the court is adjudicating anymore. And it goes exactly to Joe's point of then both sides are right. Yeah, because it really goes to something that transcends argument or analysis. Right? It's just we have to just, and I think that that's why this is such a a, for me depressing is your word. I just think terrifying is my word. Right. Mode of making these decisions, these religious liberty decisions, because I don't doubt that you know every baker who doesn't want to frost a a, a same sex wedding cake, you know, may or may not hold those beliefs in earnest. There are serious civil rights implications to deferring all the time and for courts to simply say, you know, we're going to both put ourselves in the business of deciding these cases, but also not either not decide, which is what the court did Mm -hmm. in town of Greece, or say we have to defer. I think that that is an act of sort of judicial nihilism, which scares me a little bit. Yeah, because equality is suddenly, you know, it's like, Isaac looking up at his dad and like, oh my gosh. Well, there's a, <laughs> there's, think, that's a pretty big knife you got there, dude. Right? I, I think it's, <laughs> and I think I'm it's, equality and your religious conscience and I. This is someone better intervene here in a yeah, minute. Yeah. I think it's the inevitable consequence of making a decision in our law to give sh- a shield or a sword, depending. You know, they're interchangeable uh, to behaviors which are said to have. A religious influence, you know, where, where there is a mode of thought which is protected, but right. other modes of thought which are not. Right. And and that works in a society where everybody is religious and does things for religious reasons, right? Because then there's just a zone of things that government shouldn't touch. But in a society which is increasingly driven not by, um, what is it, intersectarian 
but it's it's religious or basically not religious. I feel strongly about this thing, but not because of any uh, connection to God or uh, rules created by a God, but because I just believe very strong. I don't know why. I just believe very strongly in them. That that gets no. And 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 the fact that we make that distinction means inevitably we're going to get in the business of figuring out whether something is really a religious conviction. Right. I think it's just you know, having this idea that religion is valuable and deserves a shield from government is maybe incompatible with getting a really clean jurisprudence in this area in the and, long run. And, and maybe also the reason that you have these irreconcilable ideas that, you know, town of Greece is not about religion. It's about sort of civility and civil discourse. And this is not about, you know, one religious group imposing because we're just, this is just about how civilized societies conduct themselves. This isn't evangelizing anyone or making anyone uncomfortable because since the dawn of time, legislative prayer has not been religious. Right. Right. So this simultaneous argument that religion is not religious, it's just fundamentally civilizing and those people who don't like it are not civilized. Right. And at the same time, time a line of arguments like the nuns on the you know the the, the nuns uh the, the little sisters and uh hobby lobby which is the opposite right that it, not that religion is fundamentally civilizing and we all agree and we're draining the god out of it but that this it's is fundamentally so opposed yeah yeah right intensely religious that we can't ask about it i think both those trains are going at the same time right now and yeah. they can't be reconciled tricky Tricky. I think it's. I think we can make a commitment to you that I think is completely consistent with very important journalistic values that you've laid out, which is that no matter how hard you beg to come and talk to us uh, by Skype about Hobby Lobby when it's decided, you're going to be asking to come and do a special episode with us like five minutes after it's decided. Oh, of course. No matter how hard you beg, I insist that it not be fewer than seven days after the decision that we talk to you on Skype about Hobby Lobby. Because it it would not be right to do that without your having the time to fully consider and think and reflect. So no, I say to you, I know, I know. No, I say to you on morning of decision discussions about Hobby Lobby. I think before you say that, Joe, before you make that um, commitment or you encourage that commitment, there can you give us two more minutes to give us a legal opinion about something? Okay. Would you mind? Yeah. Uh, this is here. It is. It's the bankruptcy think, law. Right? Well, that, yes, it's a very important <laughs> yeah. bankruptcy and uh, uh, retirement planning decisions. <laughs> Inherited retirement account. Yes, yeah. right, right. Um, which actually may be really important, but you know, it's separate. So that'll be our separate bankruptcy retirement plan <laughs> right. show. Um, Adam okay, Smith Dolly, I'm going to ask you this. Longtime listeners are, have, have been waiting the whole show for this, and they probably skipped to this point to try to find out the answer. Suppose you're driving down the street, okay, um, and you pass a police officer with a radar gun. Joe knows what's coming. You, you're not. You've got a poker face. I've on. known for quite uh, some time. That's why you tried to end the show just now. No. Okay. Um, and, 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 you know, and maybe it's, you know, speed trap, let's say, let's just call it, what is it? Speed trap. And then you, and you continue on down the road and you see people coming, right? Uh, and, and in a place where people typically go maybe a little bit faster than the speed limit, but it's totally safe. Do you flash your lights to let them know? Oh my God. Do you, did my husband tell you we just had this argument driving down <gasps> to <gasps> Athens? Are you kidding so me? Great. So great. Well, funny. so it's fate. It's uh, so funny. We have we talked about this, this maybe argument. on five episodes of this okay. show. And we're, the have, le- we're America's leading speed trap podcast. Yeah. yeah. The we leading really light are. flashing. Including legal issues. Oh, yeah. Whether it's freedom we, of we speech. Have found, I won't tell you how this comes out because I want, I'm going to hear your unvarnished. I will tell you that some of the cases that we found cite Immanuel Kant 
um, to resolve this argument. Century opinions a century old. Yes, this is a. What was the Kantian version of flashing your brights for a speed trap? Uh, or is it more? It's, it's not uh, a two-minute. I want to hear what you say first, okay. and then, then <laughs> it has to do with whether something is a. If, if everybody did this, how would it end up? And, right, right, yeah, right, right, yeah. right. So, so I will tell you. Driving down here, I have just become a fan of Waze. W a z e. Oh yes, a, yeah. You know, a, a, like a, an app on my phone. Oh okay, I've never and heard I, of it. I feel that Waze should give me twenty points just for it. Basically, like turns all of driving into Frogger. So you get points <laughs> all the time, and you like if you. So one of the things you get huge points for is reporting police oh, trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big point. Mm-hmm. What and is this app? What is it called again? W-A-Z-E. W-A-Z-E. And it's fantastic because it's, in, as opposed to your regular GPS, it will accommodate for traffic. It oh, will okay. warn you in advance. It will reroute you on your fastest possible route given. And it's live. Everybody, because everybody is reporting constantly. Oh, I see. Okay. You see other ways users on the map and you can kind of click, you can kind of just touch their car and and you'll see, like, 20 minutes ago, this person was here, and they reported that traffic was going only five miles an hour or something wow. like it's that. So, yeah. so it's well, I think it's great to encourage people to use their devices while they're driving. Well, I think that's you awesome. can't use it while you're driving. I, they, they make you click that you're a passenger, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I love it because I get, <laughs> I get points for it. Right. And once you, as soon as you incentivize me with, like, victory, then that's it's all over. I'm like, oh, I'm a fourth-rank ninja wazer in Virginia. So um, Aaron was saying to me that he thought it was really... This is, let me just say, this is Aaron Fine. Aaron Fine, my husband, my... Mm. my Artist uh, behind the white flag. I'm going to drop a link to the white flags yes. in here. So They're yeah, lovely. Yes, He's, and kindest, gentlest person alive. It's terrific. Yeah, and uh, and said, you know, for a person who has a, a moral issue with flashing your brights to let someone know there's a speed trap, you're awfully quick to push the ways thing, saying there's a cop here. <laughs> uh, what's that about? Like, how can you reconcile the fact that you don't want to be lawless in that sense, mm-hmm. but you're very happy to warn so thousands con- of drivers? So you're confessing you do have a scruple about flashing with I the light. I do have a scruple, and yet it seems that points <laughs> will overcome. <laughs> right. So, like, the you idea that I You're easily corrupted. Is that flashing ninja, for free right, that right, you were objecting right. to? Yeah, have, no, who's know. the Adam Smith here? I didn't know this have about you, myself. Have you He's ever a, flashed your lights to warn people of a police uh, officer? Very rarely. I mean, I've, I've done it mm-hmm. because it seems a thing to do, but mm-hmm. I, I don't do it without huge moral qualms. So, and, and it maybe is situation dependent. You know, you yeah. want to flash it at someone who looks like they're driving crazy. But no. if it's a cop in a place where it's clearly like the speed limit is lower than it, simply to make money, you might yeah. be more likely. I, mean, it's, 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 I would say rare that I've done it, but I've mm-hmm. done it in times where like my heart goes. Okay, out. now what about what about Aaron? He's not here to defend himself. Does he? It, I think he's a light flasher. Yeah, I think he's. I mean, I just like think all good he, people. Like all good people. In other words, I've now not only identified myself as a bad person for not flashing my lights, right. but an extra bad person. No, but you do sometimes. I you do, do sometimes. sometimes. I do. Sometimes. I, I have to tell you now, um, Joe is a monster. Doesn't um, flash his light. Do, basically, don't. Yeah. And he tried. The I, only I, time I, I, I think about it is when we're talking about it on the show. Yeah. But believe it or not, for several episodes running, he tried to defend himself by saying he didn't think that people could see lights in the day, and he actually had to conduct an experiment in the parking garage, which demonstrates actually that I wasn't just claiming it; I actually <laughs> believe it. Right? You, you're undermining your your own stupid self that by is, you say I didn't. Do you, you realize that at every point in the podcast that I've listened to, you guys become like Statler and Waldorf, those guys in the Muppets who sit on the balcony <laughs> and just start bickering, bickering about crazy ass things. We're, we're right. looking, you're, we're looking more and more like that too. Right? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, know, so I know, I know. You've crossed the measure. I'm the one with a very round head. <laughs> I'm afraid this is what people tune in for, though. And so this is what 
And eventually, it's just going to be a bunch of sniping back and forth. And Are you you're a light flasher way back always? I, the truth that, you know, this is, you know, the honest truth is that um, I don't always flash my lights, but I do sometimes. And, um, uh, and, and we... And it kind of depends on whether I think, you know, it's an evaluation of whether, you know, does it depends on how the person's driving. It depends on all these factors. Right. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. Okay. Um, uh, but but the but the law has given us like two explanations for why it should be legal or illegal, because there are cases where people raise First Amendment rights to flash their lights mm-hmm. and the police officers are charging them with the, basically being an accessory to a right. crime kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and these cases date back to people in in like. Carriages with horses. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I mean, so this notion of the police setting up a situation where they can see before you realize it that you are driving recklessly is a very old idea. And it's okay to send someone a message to prevent them from committing a crime. Or to encourage them not to commit a crime, or to if they are like driving over speed to encourage them to slow down. Like that's there's nothing wrong with that. However, if you're trying to alert them to the presence of police officers, right. You know, not so good. So, you know, we had an, oh, we've been through a bunch of examples. We don't want to rehash all this we right don't. now. I think it's enough to get Dahlia's view on the record. Right. And I can honestly say this because I've taken a few long road trips recently. Mm-hmm. And I can report to you having, having seen many police in multiple states out on the road. It never once occurred to me. I don't, not, not only do I not flash my lights, it never once occurred to me that I might flash my lights. I simply don't have a it doesn't connect for me at all. I'm like, oh, look, there's a police person. I just keep driving. It's, mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not about communicating anything to anybody. Hmm. Hmm. I'm like, wow, okay, good. I've got the, I'm glad I've got the, uh, the, the, uh, what is it? The thing that holds your speed constant? Cruise control. Right, cruise cruise control. Con- you know, I'm glad I've got the cruise control only four miles above the legal limit, which is basically what I do. Um, Life would be so complicated for you if you cared about everybody else. <laughs> say, here's the real Adam Smithian component, exactly. right? right? The right. sheer solipsism of so, like. I'm so much empathy for people. That is what's so unjust well, about all this. And and that's we'll bring it back around at the end here to where we start. And this Adam Smith wrote on empathy. I will find that for yes, you. Yes, we should. We should. We should link it up. We should link it up. Well, listen, thank you so much, Dahlia. Yes, thank this you. This is fantastic. It was very fun. Will you edit out all the things that I said that were wrong or controversial? Oh, absolutely. Outstanding. Yeah, this show is going to be 20 minutes in He'll the edited version. Out, yeah. Oh, yeah. No problem. No problem. All right. Hi, Christian. <laughs> and scene. Scene. <laughs> right. That's Jenga. <laughs>